you for joining us for the Tourist Talks Trade Podcast, where we discuss timely topics in trade, national security, cybersecurity, and supply chain issues. My name is Olga Torres, and I'm the founder and managing member of Torres Trade Law, an international trade and national security law firm. My guest today is Donald Pierce, a former special agent with the Office of Export Enforcement under the U.S. Department of Commerce, who was also one of the last attaches in Moscow, Russia. Welcome, Don. Thank you for having me, Olga. So today is a very special occasion for us. One, because it marks the very, very first podcast or our pilot podcast. And also because we're able to leverage our firm's internal resources and bring you Don, who also serves as our senior advisor for global risk monitorship and investigations. Don lived in Russia for many years, is actually married to a Russian, understands the Russian culture very well, and also knows the region very well. So we thought you would be a great opener for our podcast, given the current Ukraine-Russia situation. Yeah, and, and I guess before we get started, it would be good to just get an idea of your background um, and how you ended up working for the U.S. government and specifically why the Department of Commerce had uh, boots on the ground and, and if you can explain that to people that may not be as familiar with the program. Well, sure. So I started with the government as a GS1 step one clerk in the customs service at JFK Airport. I uh, was in a cadet program and they had a stay in school program that put people to work at a part-time. So um, that really started my uh, journey in the federal government. And one of those first assignments was I was the uh, clerk for a unit called Operation Exodus, which was the Customs Services outbound enforcement team that did dual use and ITAR related uh, inspections. So I got hooked real early on export controls. Later in my career, I became a customs inspector and found myself as one of the plank holders on the newly formed outbound enforcement team at JFK Airport uh, just before I got hired by Commerce as a special agent. Uh, that happened in 1997. Oh, wow. <laughs> Dating myself now. <laughs> Hong Kong was Don, Hong Kong was <laughs> still a uh, British protectorate, <laughs> and the regulations were still squarely aimed at a, an adversary that was going away. So I feel like my career in export controls. I spent 23 years with BIS. Went from the Soviet-centric export controls of the late 80s and early 90s, and I was able to watch this process as we first made do with what we had and slowly but surely changed the regulations and eventually export control reform brought us into the 21st century with a much different set of regulations that today's export compliance professional I think has a much easier time of applying than it was back in that weird time between the Cold War and the War on Terror. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess for, for those people that may not understand what export controls mean, it, it basically the U.S. has um, 
you know, restrictions on specific technologies that are called, and I know you mentioned the ITAR, that's items that are defense and under commerce, we have dual use items. That, that's another term that, that Don was using. And those are terms that could be commercial and military in nature. So when he mentioned some of these acronyms, that's what it means. Um, so what are your, how long were you in Russia? And, and, and do you have any stories to share with us, something that, oh. that you can tell us about your work in the region? Oh, do I. <laughs> <laughs> So I arrived in uh, Moscow as the uh, export control attache, as they were known back then, in uh, 2004. And it was an interesting time to be in Moscow. The, uh, the Many of you may know about the roaring 90s, where um, the changes that came after the fall of the Soviet Union led to a, let's just say, rather gangster-like um, business environment for several years, but by 2004, things were starting to calm down. And it was interesting because it was also the rise of Vladimir Putin, who will feature in our story later as well. <laughs> yes. At the time, though, there was uh, a burgeoning middle class. There were more imports of goods into Russia with this attempt at trying to modernize. Um, there was there were several places in Russia that were going to be the next Silicon Valley. So there were a lot of tech imports. The Soviet and then later Russian education systems produce excellent mathematics students. Yes. Which means great programmers and great coders. So a lot in the software development uh, world going on over there at the time when I was there and probably up until just a couple of months ago. And the interesting thing about doing end use checks in Russia was if you went to a run of the mill company, the average Russian company, you were welcomed with open arms. They were more than happy to show you what they were doing. They were very interested in not just American technology, but in technologies that they could use to make their products better and sell them. And it was a very, I would say, pure version of capitalism going on at that worker level. Um, right. My experiences with some of the, let's say, state-owned organizations or government organizations, that would vary. Sometimes I would have to sit through a 45-minute uh, a lesson on how the Gulf War had impacted America's um, uh, reputation overseas, and I had to sit there and nod, or I would walk in with very cold eyes looking at me, which would sometimes warm up if I mentioned that my grandfather was a Coast Guardsman during the Second World War and did convoy escort duty, to which would always lead to the obvious Lend-Lease Act convoys and the stories of those which would warm the hearts and show a moment where America and the Soviet Union were at one against a common enemy, and that often warmed them up, which was nice. Yeah. I also, I'm a people person. I like, I like people. I, I try not to judge where someone comes from or, you know, what their political beliefs are. I just want to, in this case, get my job done. But I also, you know, I, I, I want to enjoy the moment as well. 
So it was always fun to learn about the interesting things that the companies could share with me about the culture. Um, and this was, and it's a fascinating culture because it and, has and been. And it sounds like back then, so the U.S. was allowed because you know I, I remember even a few years back um, where we we had re to represent companies that had been listed in the unverified list, for example, because at the time the Russian government was not cooperating on on these end use requests or checks. Um, so, so what happened then that the Russian government decides, okay, let's kick these guys out? <laughs> well, first, first of all, it happened after I left, so it's not my fault. <laughs> I was but seriously, um, I think what happened is, well, frankly, 2014's uh, invasion of Crimea, right, which so that was the first round, yeah, which which changed the dynamic significantly between the, the the Bureau of Industry and Security in Russia. When I was over there, there were sanctions against certain organizations, some of them legacy Soviet institutes that um, after the fall were still involved in um, unauthorized end uses or end users. Um, those folks remained on the entity list, or in some cases they were, um, you know, there were issues with persons that were denied export privileges or had um, been connected with uh, debarred uh, organizations under the State Department or under, under other... Um, More like entity-specific... Yeah, very end-use, end-user-specific issues. Um, and in those cases, there may have been some political sensitivities, but at least everyone knew. You knew right. that if if I was going to go back and ask about a particular company, and that company was on the entity list, there was a very small chance that I was going to get to actually talk to them. So, so that, that, that's par for the course. What event ended up happening, I think, was they, there was a decision made by the Russian government first to um, make it a state secret to share export-related information with non-Russians. Which basically made doing end use checks impossible. And, and, and was that it was that like related to their own technologies or related to like US origin products technology? That was related directly to US origin technologies coming into Russia. Yeah. And what what I found interesting about that is number one, it shut down the ability to do an end use verification because one of the things right. that obviously we want to do is we want to verify the paperwork. Right. And the one of the things I loved about doing end use checks in Russia was paperwork was plentiful. Right. <laughs> you needed permits. You needed um, permission to do things. These permissions needed to have stamps in some cases. And in many cases, you had uh, a, a, a it would have been a chore to actually authenticate all of it because there was a lot there. Um, but to me, more is better. I would right. rather see a company present to me every single piece of paper that they think is involved in a particular transaction than to leave the one out that I'm actually looking for. Yeah. So it sounds like I'm, they have really good records and trails that you can, you know, review. The, and the companies that I rated as favorable, I'd say 99 times out of 100 had excellent systems for managing this paperwork. If 
in some cases, these were manual systems where I'm sure there were people that were literally filing things and making sure they knew where they were filed. But uh, in some cases, people were embracing technology. And there were many cases where they asked me if it was okay if they just printed out everything for me. And I was always cool with that. I would imagine that nowadays they could have probably um, emailed it to me. Right. Yeah. And, and that being there at that time where email was still kind of a, uh, uh, I wouldn't say it was new. It had been around for a while, but it wasn't as heavily utilized as it is today. And especially for attachments and things, because there were bandwidth limits. Yeah. So it sounds like in general, you know, bef- you know, in the olden days when, mm-hmm. when you were allowed to, to visit, you know, the companies that you visited, at least the ones that, you know, passed the test, mm-hmm. if you will, they had really good record keeping. They were open uh, to, to showing their records, I suppose. And, giving you and the they right- were doing good due diligence on their end users in many that's, cases. That's actually my experience. And I mean... Obviously, we, we get only certain sets of, of, of people that we represent, but that, that has always been my experience that when we've uh, represented Russian companies in the past, they have really good record keeping. Also, they, they do great due diligence. I think they understand that any kind of diversion could subject them also to extraterritoriality from the U.S. side. And, and I've always been very impressed because we represent people all over the world and and other countries don't have these kinds of of systems in place, at least their ERP and their due diligence was very good, in my opinion, as well. And to give credit where credit's due, um, the 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 Russian export control system is pretty good. I, they're a Vassanar member. The um, the the I have to say my interactions with the the local export control uh, authorities were limited because. Well, they also controlled uh, communication security. So it's sort of like if BIS sat in the National Security Agency. Mm-hmm. So there was a certain level of employee that was no longer allowed to talk to somebody like me. Yeah, that makes <laughs> but, sense. <laughs> um, but but the, the interactions that I had um, with, with, the, with, with Russian officials on export controls, I'd say almost uniformly good. Like everyone was on the same sheet of music. Everyone realized the importance of the mission and everyone was trying to keep things from slipping out. And I couldn't have asked for more. So so what do you think? I mean, and, and we all hear a lot about, uh, and, and justly so, um, about the people in Ukraine and, and obviously less so about Russians. And what I hear anyway is the Russian media is controlled by the government. Um, so, so from your, you know, your basic understanding of, of the culture and the country, do you think, you know, in, for the most part, the Russian people are still, do they still believe the, the war is justified or do they, what, what do you think is happening there? So my purely speculation here, um, based on the media that has been coming out of Russia, uh, that you can find on, you know, on social media, or you know, I'm not an expert on uh, the on on the current affairs networks of, of Russia. However, from what I've seen, I could imagine that the average Russian still thinks this is some type of special operation. They're, they, if if they're if they are only consuming their news from the the state owned and even the independent now kind of state controlled media in Russia, there's very little um, um, what we would consider to be accurate information making its way through. 
And when accurate information does make its way through, as I've seen in a couple of clips, it's often treated as misinformation by other Fake members news. of the panel or host. Yeah, exactly. Fake news. Yeah. Or um, the same person will come on and kind of do a mea culpa the next day. So it, I really think that most, most Russians that aren't really either hip to the internet or um, really interested in what's going on or maybe have some type of a, a reason to look, such as there are many family connections. My, I have um, family on both sides of this conflict basically now because we have members of the family that are Ukrainian as well. So um, I think the, the more skin you have in that game, the more likely you are to seek alternative news. And you might have a better idea of what's going on. However, I think back often to my reactions to the second Gulf War, where, you know, full disclosure, I wasn't really a fan. And I often felt like, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe I am not very patriotic on this. Here's here's a guy who spent his entire adult life serving his government, having a second thought about whether or not maybe he should jump on the bandwagon and call him Freedom Fries, right? <laughs> um, I and I, I so I I understand how difficult it can be for someone to have to pop that perception bubble of usually my country's on the right side of these things. Right. And and imagine the shock of finding out that not only are they not on the right side of this thing, but they haven't been on the right side of a lot of things for a long time. Yeah, that's what's so difficult, because if you if you're controlling the narrative, right, it's so powerful. People don't fully understand what's going on and you can sway them either way uh, for, you know, for the U.S., for the West. We've issued so much in terms of sanctions, economic sanctions, and there's been a lot of discussion. Well, you know. They're not working. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, I think sanctions were not necessarily supposed to stop the war, but make it very difficult for the administrator, or I guess you wouldn't even call them administrator, but for the regime there um, to, to continue with the war. And I think in the for the most part, it, it is working. I mean, it's been so multilateral. Uh, so many countries have joined in terms of economic sanctions that it's really actually hurting them. Um, in terms of not having a full embargo, because we don't have a full embargo, right? Un unlike other with other countries, like where do we go from from where we are now? I know that you know as economic sanctions and export lawyers, we we have to monitor. And it's so fluid, and every day there's something new. I mean, I think uh, last week or the week before it was on a Sunday where they issued a, a mm -hmm. bunch of new new FRs. Um, but where do we go from where we are now? I mean, are we ever in a position to do a full embargo? Yes, and, and if not, why Why do you think that that would not be the case? And, and more specifically, for companies that are still doing business in the region, in, is it a recommendation of obviously continue with caution, double checking everything um, because things are so fluid, um, or is it, what are you doing? Get out kind of environment, in your opinion. So um, I'll, I'll answer the second part first and say, as a former criminal investigator, I'm always of the opinion that if you're in doubt, you should probably not do it. Right. But there are many things that a company can do to alleviate that doubt. Good end use and user reviews are key. 
understanding and knowing your customer. I mean, it goes beyond just our normal uh, advice in this case. You have to basically take one step further and try and find if there is a threat that the goods or technology that you're sharing could end up helping the war effort. Because then, even if it is legitimate and can go without without or with a light with or without a license even if the transaction can legally proceed do you really want to do that so the the questions that and getting paid getting paid is so and difficult, getting getting right? paid is an important part that's now a lot trickier than it was you know a couple of months ago yeah. and and it is and and it's an important piece of the calculation for a company i mean and and so I'm also conflicted on this because, for example, my, you know, the family that we have that are still in country, they're still going to need, you know, cardiac medicine. They're still going right. to need medical devices like blood pressure cuffs. And right. there's, there are going to be simple things that if you were to draw the, the aperture out and say, oh, well, you know, you could take that blood pressure monitoring device that's intended for grandma and, you know, give it to a medic and now it's helping the war effort. Yeah. All right. Sure. Right. You got me. But I think yeah, we and, have and, to and the think thing about is these we, things. We do have, and I know with OFAC and, and, and even with commerce, we have so many, you know, general licenses under OFAC mm-hmm. for humanitarian purposes, medical, same with commerce. Um, you know, you may, may still perhaps require licensing and double checking is not going to the wrong hands and things like that. But hopefully we have, but I I think in practice, what we're seeing also, and that is concerning, there is just so much noise, right? And people are getting scared. I've had situations where we have forwarders and the transaction is completely legal. There's no licenses. Products are year 99, for example. And, and then people just don't want to go there. They don't want to move it. They don't want to transport it. I mean, p- companies are leaving the region. Uh, so it, it, it is interesting. And, and it's, I agree with you. I mean, certain things we, for humanitarian concerns alone, uh, we would hope that we continue the trade or at least sending those kinds of items, which is usually what we do in, in any region. I mean, even fully embargo regions, we have exceptions for that. And my last question, because we, we're running out of time. Um, <laughs> So a lot of attention, obviously, Russia, Ukraine region. And at the same time, we're seeing some parallel writing regarding regarding China and Taiwan ambitions. And, you know, what are they going to do? And if they if they do invade, what you know, what would the U.S. and the West do? Which I presume it will be similar treatment, you know, full economic sanctions, export controls. The biggest difference, right, will be China is such a big part of our trade, right? Our second largest trading partner. And, you know, unlike Russia, where we don't have as much. So I think that in my speculation, you know, I, I wonder how, how far we would go in, in, in such a situation. But then I'm also seeing that apparently the Chinese government is requesting people to decouple from the U.S. economy, divest assets and things like that, which is almost like, are they getting ready to do something like that? What, what is your opinion there? And what, what what do you think the U.S. response should be in terms of like our world export and economic sanctions? Well, thanks for the easy question. <laughs> so so if I as I gaze into my crystal ball, I think two of the things that um, I find interesting is uh Firstly, yes, the it does appear that the 
Chinese government is attempting to insulate its membership um, from potential foreign sanctions activity. But that might not just be because they're thinking of going into Taiwan. That could be because they're afraid of secondary sanctions related to Russia. Russia. Yeah. And honestly, they don't have to be as worried about that as I think they could have been, because there is evidence that Chinese companies are starting to stop shipping to Russia, uh, specifically in the tech sector. I read that, and I was actually quite surprised about that. Me too. It it makes total sense, though, if you think about it. If I'm a Chinese company and I'm selling, you know, 70% to U.S. companies and 10% to Russia, or, you know, I don't know, but I'm assuming we are one of their largest trading partners, um, and we are, uh, I'm not assuming, we are. So it would make sense that they would not try to get in trouble with U.S. authorities, I would think, right? And I think... I think there's also a lot of math going on in the heads of Chinese officials regarding whether or not this is the right time for Taiwan based on the reaction of the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian uh, defense forces, the the civilian defense forces. Uh, Everyone expected that this was going to take a month tops. Right. And um, one of the one of, I think, Ukraine's secret weapons here that uh, that have allowed it to withstand these these onslaughts is once the uh, problems in the Donbass became militarized, the folks who were subject to national service and uh, conscripted would end up spending some time on the lines. You know, some longer than others, but everyone got a little taste of it. So in addition to your standing army, you had, I believe the estimate was somewhere in the neighborhood of 400,000 people that had gone through the system since 2014 and had some sort of combat experience or at least training in the, in the combat environment. So that's a great reserve. Right. And I think that was underestimated. You can look at Taiwan's national service very similarly, although they have not had to actually, you know, uh, uh, you know, engage. There is a, 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 a notion of national service duty that you don't see in some other countries that have conscription uh, forces. In yeah. fact, I, I Russia wonder, being one of them. <laughs> I also wonder whether, you know, I don't think Putin is a young guy, right? He's what, 70 something? Gosh, you know, again, that's like an that. easy but question. He's pretty huh? high up. And, I yeah, mean, I, I mean, he's, like, he's getting there's there. There's a little bit of a, of a disconnect in his world and the younger generations, right? Because we are all about this movements and just society and social media and sharing information. Like, I, I remember. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stop you there because I don't think that's because he's old. I think that's because he's insulated. Yeah, that 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 too. They said that he has surrounded himself with a trusted, a small trusted circle, and that trusted circle is so afraid of him that they will not tell him the truth. So regardless of you know he, he he's he may be many things, but I don't think he's stupid. And I think what has happened is he has, as a a colleague of mine used to say, don't believe your own press releases. <laughs> Not only does he believe in his own press releases, he's writing them himself. Right. And, you know, as long as he is in charge, 
I don't think you're going, he, I don't think he is going to know the truth. And even if someone were brave enough to tell him, he wouldn't believe him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just remember, you know, talking to my, my nanny and my, uh, and other younger, much, you know, very young. And they're like, who, who takes countries like that anymore? It sounds like from the, you know, something you read in the history books, like not something you do now in 2022. People do TikTok videos instead. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, you know, I had this conversation in 2014 with a, a good friend of mine who um, I'm going to say had a, uh, a, let's say, a different opinion of Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation than I did. And, you know, his opinion was that this was, you know, this would have been normal in any time in this century. And I said, I had to, well, hold up. I said, when was the last time this something like this happened? And you had to go back into you know the 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 the, the post World War II right. uh, scenarios, yeah, where you had a you know where you had either you know the Stalinist ambitions or you had um, you know you could even go back you know go you could you could say that Korea is a, an excellent example of this where you have you know. Um, army versus army you know the you know vietnam you know slightly different but still um we're not talking about something that happens in the information age anymore and i always thought we had that peace dividend of this interconnected world and um you know globalist tendencies for trade that was supposed to make everything more peaceful and more stable and then the bottom dropped out on globalism right <laughs> the supply chain issues that we have make it look like a bad idea all of a sudden right the nationalism in certain countries ours included right probably tainting that globalist view even further yeah. and no one was prepared for this the the only folks who, you know, I, I, I can't say I saw this coming. I had, I had it as a 50-50 coin flip as to whether or not Vladimir Putin would pull the trigger. But my, I changed that to 60-40 the week before <laughs> because it just looked like there was no other reason for them to be doing what they were doing. Right, yeah. And, and I feel like it was that moment that I mourned the death of globalization. Because I don't think we'll ever go back to that. I think what we're going to see, um, your export controls related, we're going to move from multilateral regimes to plurilateral agreements. Right. We're not going to have the the you know and 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 will COCOM come back for you know? <laughs> I, I'm dating myself now, but uh, <laughs> COCOM was the coordinating committee of um, basically Western nations trying to decide what export controls to put on to keep stuff from going to Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And you know, are we going to see something like that again, where suddenly we go from this broader non-proliferation, you know? counter-terrorism uh, setting of we just want to make sure that the the nukes and the missiles and the um, military weapons that could be used by al-Qaeda don't get into the wrong hands, right? right? Back to the, you know, state-specific export controls that we saw under the days of the Soviet Union. And if this thing protracts, which 
all evidence says the Russians are not going to pull out of Ukraine anytime soon, um, we may be faced with going back to the future. Yeah. Well, very interesting. Thank you so much, Don, for joining us today and our listeners for tuning in. We'll bring you more of the Taurus Talks trade very soon. Thank you. Thank you so much.